Today is August 13th, 2020, and this is Sam Walking in the World, Episode 9. I have a lot to talk about again today. Um, some of the stuff I didn't um, get in last time and some new stuff. But as always, we'll, we'll just see where this goes. Um, today I'm going to talk about some stupid stuff, of course. Um, in, a, in some lifey things, I'm going to talk about panhandlers. Um, I see them everywhere. They've been on my mind lately, and I'd like to share my thoughts with you on them. And then in larger things, I'm going to talk about parenting. I'm going I'm to talk about parents, what it's like to have them growing up, and what it's like to become them when you are growing up. And so, <clears throat> without further ado, let me get right to it. Um, first, stupid stuff. Um, I took my OCD medicine this morning. Uh, I don't mean actual medicine, like a pill. I mean, I did something that I would normally hate doing. And that is, I walked on wet grass. I've hate I've hated wet grass since I had a paper route when I was a kid. Like, all it takes, especially in the morning, like dewy grass. All it takes is like five steps on wet grass and your entire sneakers are soaking wet. <clears throat> Toes are wet. Socks are wet. And you know it's going to take forever to dry your sneakers off. I guess you can put them in the dryer, but then you hear that. Go, 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 go. And I always worry if I'm, like, burning the rubber or plastic on the sneakers. So I usually just put them in front of a fan, and I have to wait a long time until my sneakers are dry. And they're never really all the way dry. It takes, like, days. Anyway. Uh, my dog likes to go out in the morning and wrestle around and bite my sweatshirt and in the process my arm and hands. And um, it was one of those one of those days where the dew point must have been, I don't know, low or high. I'm not very good at chemistry. So whichever one means it's wet. <clears throat> and, uh, and at first I was just standing there on it. And it makes no difference at all to the dog. So... Oh, man, this will just seem like a, an odd refusal from her perspective if I do this. So dogs are about routine. And I feel like why they why they trust you, why they love you, a lot of it is because you, you in a way, do what you say you're going to do. But what you say you're going to do to them is what you did yesterday and the day before and the day before. So I just kind of like was like, you know what, I have a wash. I, I mean, I have a dryer and I have other sweatshirts two actually and uh shirts two actually and shorts so i was like you know what i'm just gonna do this so i started playing with her and i, I as soon as i got myself down on the ground and, and my clothes became past that tipping point of wet where you know you're probably gonna have to change them anyway i thought all right well i don't really have much else to lose after this except the grates on my ocd <clears throat> so i just did our normal routine Letting her pull on my sweatshirt, make her think she's pulling me down to the ground. She rolls over me. I fight back a little bit. She, I drag her back and forth. I can get my index finger in between her top, like, canines. So she can bite down, but it's not actually puncturing my finger. And I can just grab her by those teeth and just flip her around. And she loves it. Um, first, I was afraid I might, like, yank one of her teeth out. But I, I think... My finger's going to rip off before that happens. But anyway, as soon as I went past the tipping point, I felt way better. I felt like I kind of surrendered to my OCD. And, uh, no, against my 
I don't know. You know what I mean. But anyway, I recommend that. Something that you typically are don't want to do because you think it's going to mean a cleanup or a, you know some kind of fix up afterwards. It does feel better if you're like me. Some people that probably isn't a problem at all. You already do it. <clears throat> but like I said, I'm OCD. Okay. Uh, other stupid stuff. Um, I was wondering this. How smart are horses? All I ever hear when pe pe people talk about horses that ride them is how smart they are. They're so smart. They're so intuitive. And I'm cool with that. Like I don't got anything against horses being smart, but I don't. I don't know how you can tell. Like I can tell my dog is smart because when I say things like "go get your ball," her ears perk up and she starts looking around the yard, and then you know often goes and gets it. Um, can a dog? Can a horse do that? Like if you said, you know, go get the stick or something like that, would they go get it? Will they understand that that's what you mean for them to do? Because, like, all that ever really moves on them is their eyes and, I guess, their neck. It's really hard to interpret intent from their body motions. So maybe like you have to ride them and you know when you're riding them that they're smart because they can tell what you want them to do and they just do it intuitively. So maybe you have to be a, a horse rider in order to get it. But honestly, I'm unconvinced. But like I said, that is stupid. Okay, lifey stuff. I said I wanted to talk about panhandlers. Um, I notice them a lot. Like, I don't know if there's been an uptick in, in panhandling, like a surge. Um, but I see them, like, on every off-ramp. Every, like, major and minor highway off-ramp. <clears throat> and um, it, it, it appears that cops don't seem to actively be doing anything about them. And, like, you know, a cop will pull up to, like, I've seen cop. In the other lane, like, pull up. We're at the same intersection, and there's a panhandler, right, literally, right next to the cop on the corner. And the panhandler, like, kind of puts the sign down near his feet and kind of twists his body a little bit. So it's kind of like he happens to be looking away from the cop, the cop at that moment, not directly showing him the sign. And um, and uh, the cop appears to ignore it and then, and then allow it. I don't know if they have some separate task force that goes out there and does it and that's not the sheriff's job but it reminded me like in college when when you were in the freshman dorm and everybody knew that you were sneaking beer in in your backpack or in a, in a paper bag with groceries in it and you'd go by the security guard and, and uh, they would just kind of look the other way I think it's like you know don't from from the security guard or cops perspective it's like don't stick it in my face all right that's the, that's, you're disrespecting me if you do that because you know you're not supposed to be doing this. But if you do it discreetly and we all kind of know what's going on, then have at it. Um, and, but I've just been noticing kind of like the, the culture of panhandling because there is. There seems to be kind of a culture. Like, like there, I, I, there seems to be like a healthy competition for spots. Like it must be like whoever gets out there earliest – establishes the spot and then the other people that might want that spot have to go to other sometimes they go right across the street like uh opening up a mcdonald's across from a burger king 
But I know they're going to end up splitting the take if they do that, so they tend to go further away. So, like, there seems it's nice to see like the, the principles of capitalism are seeking into seeping into like the, you know, ostensibly socialist realm. Uh, it's nice to see that's working. It's kind of a uh, ironic, I guess. But so they rotate through different spots, almost like they're working shifts. Like the same spot in the morning, I'll see this one guy. And then, like, I don't know, after 3 o'clock or so, I'll see this other person. And that's, like, regularly throughout the week. It'll be one person, then the other person. So it's, like, almost like they, they do have shifts. It made me think, like, you know, you guys are so close to working. Well, why don't you just work? And they all seem to be able-bodied and attractive. I saw a very attractive panhandler the other day, this woman. I was like, wow, man, she's got great bone structure. What is she doing standing on this on this median with a, a cardboard sign? I don't, I don't understand. Like maybe they don't want to be tied down to like a nine to five. Um, I guess, but they kind of have one anyway. But I see the same people over and over at different corners. I, I kind of know that's this guy's corner. I know that's that guy's corner. I know all their faces. And, and, um, but I don't know their like any of their names, which I guess is normal. Why would I? But maybe it'd be nice if they wore name tags. It'd be like, "Hi, Carl. Uh, here's a quarter." Um, I wouldn't know though. I've never worn a panhandler hat. But I do know this, and I think and this is where I think you probably have experienced it too. Is where this you pull up to the red light, and there's like that social awkwardness, especially if like the light just turned red, and you're right at the front. And you're sitting there, and, and the guy's looking at you, and now they're waving all the time. They do this thing where they do this, like, this friendly, constant, like, Queen of England wave. And um, they don't bother you. They don't come over your car and knock on the window or anything. They just happen to be there in your in your field of sight. And so I, you can't really help it. Sometimes you just end up making eye contact with them. And, uh, and it can be, like, kind of awkward. If I make eye contact with them long enough, does that, do they read that as like uh, I want them to come over because I'm reaching into my you know change purse to to give them money? I don't know. First of all, I don't have a change purse. I don't know why I said that, but that's all right. <clears throat> um, but sometimes I'll you know, like I said, I know certain guys, and there was this one guy that was selling water one time. It was a super hot, humid day, and he was just like pouring sweat but he had on because with this covid thing he had on protective gloves um a mask and he had disinfectant sitting right on top of this little cooler that he had full of what i what i learned was bottled water and i was thirsty and I, my lips were parched i was like oh my god man this guy just nailed the market so i rolled my window down i was like hey i'll take one and he was charging a dollar for um, a 12 ounce water and now it does seem expensive but you know I mean I paid a heck of a lot more at a concert so I gave it to him and uh, and I thought you know what I, this guy's alright he was courteous quick like man you know this dude like again like this dude could work so but I mean I, I, it made me try to figure out like what is there must be a reason why they're doing this instead of working I mean, I thought maybe like drugs, like they have a drug habit, but like most places don't 
do drug tests. Maybe you got to pass one at the beginning, but then after that, I mean, you can probably do all the drugs you want as long as you showed up to do the job. And this guy was showing up to do the job. So, uh, from time to time, when I pull up to that one, if I have changed, because I actually keep my change in one of those tall old Tylenol bottles, not uh, a Walgreens acetaminophen bottle, because I wouldn't be able to get it open and close without the cap dropping on the floor because the screw grooves are so cheap. But on the Tylenol bottle, it's really quick and easy. And so I would I would reach in, dump out, like, I don't know, whatever change came out in my hand, 72 cents, 64 cents, 48 cents. And I would just hold it, my hand out, out the window a little bit. He'd come hustling over. He'd take it and say, thank you, God bless. And, uh, and, then, and I would leave. But then sometimes on my way home after that, I would stop at another light and there'd be another panhandler because they really are everywhere. And... Uh, and uh, I'm making eye contact with this guy the same way. And I'm wondering, does this guy think I'm going to give him something now? And I was like, ah, this is awkward. So I am like, I was almost tempted to roll my window and be like, oh, I'm sorry, man. But uh, I, uh, I give back over at Erie Boulevard. So, which he probably would have understood. Oh, that's very weird. I also noticed this. I mean, I thought maybe the reason they don't want to work work is because they don't want a boss. Like they don't want someone telling them what to do. And they there is some freedom in just kind of being a panhandler. You can, you know, do it however you feel like, wear whatever you want. But I also noticed this. They're always standing in, in the super hot summer or in the bitterly cold winter, which I guess makes more sense. But they're always standing up. They're never like sitting in a chair. Never pull out like a lazy boy or even like a desk chair or anything like that. It's not even a stool most of the time. They're standing, which makes me think maybe that they've come to some kind of arrangement with the cops where they're not allowed to sit. Like if they sit down, maybe that will be addressed. They'll get arrested or they'll get a ticket or a summons or something like that. Um, maybe like sitting crosses the line from panhandler to like squatter. And the, and the police department thinks maybe, like, if they sit, they might sleep. And if they're allowed to sleep, they might never leave. Um, or just maybe it's just more offensive to the public to see a beggar sitting. But I've seen people on plenty of jobs where they're supposed to stand up and all they do is sit on their butt. And they come with benefits. But anyway, what they do isn't easy. So I, I kind of have a certain kind of respect for panhandlers, especially in this climate. You know, especially with our winters, it is it is brutal. Like I, I mean, it's brutal just walking to your car, and they will stand out there in their like giant snowmobile outfit with their sign, their gloves on, and it's like you know. And it got me thinking, like if I were if I were a panhandler, why would I be in Syracuse? I, I imagine you don't really have too many ties. You know, you're not tied down here, and panhandling is something you can do anywhere. It's like nursing or teaching. It's like, why don't they just pick up and go somewhere where it's nicer? There's probably more competition there. But it's like, why don't they like become like snowbaggers? Like snowbirds? Like go down to Myrtle Beach from like December to March. They probably run into some of the same clients that they have up here during the good months. You know, and then a after the winter is over in the north, they could go back home. They could go back homeless. 
But anyway, it's kind of sad. What makes me sad about it is, is like if I, I picture myself like as low as I might be at a certain point in my life, like the idea of going out there and standing in open view, begging. And like my first reason I would never do it is because someone I know would see me. And, and it would be a, a pretty shameful feeling if somebody that I, you know, that knows me and that I know, you know, worse off even look up to. But they would see and that and that they would be like, dude. Uh, but it makes me it makes me kind of I guess you gotta figure it they're from families where there aren't the kind of people who would be disappointed in seeing them begging. Which is even sadder. You know, begging is like a statement of like I've given up on my self worth. You know, like but then again I've seen people in other occupations who beg shamelessly, like like politicians, you know? I think more highly of panhandlers than I do politicians. But, but the more I thought about these beggars, I guess they are, um, thought something in their upbringing must have been off. I wonder if they're going to pass that kind of upbringing to their own children if they if they have them because it doesn't matter whether you're a panhandler or not if you have a child you are a parent so i was thinking a lot about that wanted to share it with you and um so i'm going to take a quick break right now and then when i come back i'm going to talk about parenting and um, you know, what it's like to what's like to be a parent what it's like to have had a parent growing up or have one now with that i will be right back Welcome back to Sam Walking in the World, episode 9. That message was brought to you by a cow doing an impression of another cow he knows. Now, I want to get to parenting. It's been on my mind a lot lately. First, I have to I have to explain something. Full disclosure. I think I mentioned it before, but I myself am not a parent. Well, I don't know if that's true. I'm not a father. I'm a stepfather. Um, and the definition of parent is kind of nebulous. So I guess in some ways I am a parent. Um, in some ways, I don't know if I could call myself one, to be fair. But um, uh, I can't say what it's like to have my own children, depending on what the definition of my own is. People always say to me when they find out that I have stepkids, and I've had them since they were like four and five years old. I was around them all the time, and then when I married their mother... We all live together, and they're in their, they're 19 and 21 now. So, um, people always say, you know, if, if you live with them and you help raise them, they're your kids. And I understand the sentiment, but there's a part of me that feels like that isn't fair to their father, whom I know, and I, I know is a good person doing his best, which is a great deal. So... It's not one of those situations where, <clears throat> you know, father's not in their life or anything. Father's very much in their life, and I, I really don't have any problem with that. It doesn't appear that he has any problem with me playing the role that I play, which brings me back to, to monikers, you know, names we call ourselves. And I think, you know, is it really that important to me? It might be important to someone, but it's not that important to me whether or not I'm called dad or whether or not they consider me their parent. Or called anything, really, <clears throat> for that matter. Things are what they are. 
you know, regardless of what they're named. Um, that goes all the way back to Shakespeare. Probably beyond. But my relationship with my stepkids is what it is because of the time we've spent together. What they've done, what I've done, what they've said, what I've said, what our, what our responses are to each other, <clears throat> what we've done or not done for each other. And um, the feeling that develops because of that ends up determining what our relationship is, whether or not they should listen to me, you know, whether or not it should matter to them if I'm disappointed in them. Um, or vice versa. Um, but anyway, I am what I am. And um, and I feel like now the, the frame of mind that I have now that I that now that I'm happy or now that that's what made me happy is that you know the only thing I am and, and ever was and, and will try to be as long as possible is just Sam walking in the world. Now, the the part of parenting that I want to talk about is is this kind of a dichotomy between um, like overprotectiveness versus giving your children autonomy or, or helping them develop autonomy. And I guess when I say overprotectiveness, I mean <clears throat> not, not really letting them develop that autonomy out of care, right? Out of, out of protection. So um, I think in my own childhood, I think I could say that me and my siblings and I were were a bit overprotected. You know, my, my mother was always of the mindset that better to keep you safe so nothing terrible happens to you than put you out there, even though you might learn something from it, but to put you out there at risk <clears throat> of something bad, bad happening, like um, unrecoverable happening. And I guess therein lies a range of definitions of what is and isn't unrecoverable. But I, um, I always remember when I was reading The Call of the Wild, um, when I was teaching it to like seventh graders, like 25 years ago, um, uh, Jack London said, um, it wasn't in the book The Call of the Wild, but I was reading up on Jack London. And, and his philosophy was more like discovery through experience rather than staying safe. And uh, he said, uh, the proper function of man is to live, not to exist. I shall not waste my days in trying to prolong them. And uh, I think that's true. And it ended up being true for him because he died very young in his 40s. But he had one heck of a life. And so um, I was thinking about, but I was thinking about how that goes along with parenting in the sense that one of the most important things I believe a parent can do for their children is to help them develop their own voice their own voice like let 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 their voice become let let their own voice become what they come to trust right even even if it finds disagreement with you the parent you know the loving parent you know it's like independence sometimes is more important than security like independent thought i believe is like the essence of being alive You've got a true person in the world feeling self-reliant, even if you make mistakes sometimes. Like that's where real freedom is. It is dangerous. There's no doubt about it. Um, but sometimes a child needs to be able to say to their parent, 
or not maybe not a child, you know, adolescent, post-adolescent, when, when the person is, you know, old enough to have become accustomed to kind of what the world is like, if they've been allowed to. And, then, you know, there always comes that moment where the child says, you know, Mom or Dad, I love you, and I understand that, that you worry about me, but I am, my, I am my own person in the world, and, and I don't need your approval to make this decision. You know, hopefully they say, I get that from the voice I have inside. And hopefully you as a parent can feel like, or me as a parent, if I am one, can feel like, well, I helped you develop that voice. So I kind of had a hand in it. So in a sense, I kind of have to trust the voice that you have inside you too. If, if I did my job as a parent of helping you develop that, or did I just supply you with my voice? So you, you really aren't independent in a sense like like you likely never disagree with me because because what you consider the right or wrong thing to do is still sort of coming from me um and and some parents like that because that guarantees that the kid is going to be able to you're going to be able to have a hand in keeping the kid safe young adult safe whatever it is um and that it's funny like any kind of caretaker I think, and I learned this in, in um, when I was teaching special ed. We always said we wanted to to keep children in the least restrictive environment, meaning we wanted them to be as independent as possible. And like I think the goal, the true goal of a conscientious caretaker is to make themselves obsolete. You know, to make it so the person, if if the person is going through a development of you know, developing independence himself um, to make it so they don't need you anymore. And I think that's a hard thing for some people to do because it feels great to feel needed. And, and you worry that a person who, you know, doesn't need you anymore might end up making bad choices. Um, I was teaching the, the novel Night by uh, Elie Wiesel about the, his, his experience going through the Holocaust. And as I was reading the background on it and, and, and Judaism and the Talmud and all that, I came across a philosopher named Maimonides. Maimonides is a, was a French philosopher and scholar. And I didn't know it, but I discovered that he is the guy who came up with that saying, if you give a man a fish, you feed him for a day. If you teach a man to fish, you feed him for a lifetime. And... I didn't know that. I've said it a billion times. Not a billion times. I've said it a lot. And uh, and and I think a lot of people have. And I don't know if anyone knows where it came from. But it came from the, the Jewish philosopher Maimonides. Give a man a fish, feed him for a day. Teach a man to fish, feed him for a lifetime. In other words, you give him autonomy. And it's funny because I was trying to compare that to my mom who was super protective. And, you know, out of a good motivation, out of a caring, protective motivation, but that comes with the downside, too. And so I was, like, thinking, like, what would my mother's version of that slogan be? Like, <laughs> I have no offense, Mom, if you're listening, but I think it would be, like, it, like it would be, like, free fish daily, no fishing allowed. Free fish daily, no fishing allowed. That way she could make sure it was a good fish. You ate all of it. Good to go. Okay, now go on your way. Come back tomorrow. I'll give you another fish. If she catches anybody fishing, she finds them. 
in her own way. But there's another side of that, too, which I'll get to. So, Mom, hang in there if you're listening. I wanted to tell this story because some people don't have it so good. Like, you know, all the stuff that my mother and my father, particularly my mother, baked into us as children. You know, stuff that they she, she poured into the concrete before we had a chance to even know what was happening. And that ended up being a foundation that I just don't know if you can do anything about. You know, it comes with the good and the bad. As most parents are doing their best. That's the kind of the way it is. People really like to blame their parents for things. I, I'm not. That's not what this is. I hope. But I want to tell you a story about this person. Her name is Nashe. I'll leave her last name out of it, even though it was like 25 years ago. So I don't think she would even know who I am or ever care that I said her name. But I want to tell you a story about Nashe. And you'll see how it relates to my own upbringing. Um, So I got to thinking, like, is it true that we all eventually become our parents, whether we like it or not? And I have, so I was in my 20s, and I, in my 20s, I first started out teaching, and I was at an inner city high school, and I was teaching what's called resource, which is basically you, you help kids that have trouble with their studies, you know, you help them prepare for tests, you help them do their homework, at least back in the day, that's what it was, don't get me started on what it is now, but, um, I, uh, first, first, let me tell you this, just to give you some perspective. Growing up, I never felt like I was like my own person. I guess I, kind of, I felt like I kind of belonged to my parents. My parents were people in the world, not, not me. I didn't really care what the world thought of me in my you know younger years growing up, but I, I, my, my dad put the fear of God in me. And that was back when corporal punishment was practically mandatory. My dad was a high school principal back in the day, and and I, when I mean when I say back in the day, I mean back in the day when it, in the high school, in his yearbook picture, I actually I swear to God I actually saw this. He was the principal of the high school, and his yearbook photo was him sitting at his desk, and hanging on the wall behind him was a giant paddle, and it wasn't hanging there like as a decoration. It had a little little chain on it that was hooked to like a nail or something so that he could access it quickly and often. Um, and uh, a spanking was just the thing you did. And I was spanked all the time, a lot. And But I honestly, looking back, I can't think of a single time I didn't deserve it. And I probably got away with a whole bunch more. But I would run to my mom, try to escape my dad. I would run to my mom and I'd run into her arms. And my mom would shout at my dad, Tom, no, not the head. Thanks, Mom. But anyway, I, I did live a very sheltered childhood. And um, my my parents embedded in me many things. And um, when I got into adulthood, I, I took on my own responsibilities, and I realized that how much uncertainty there is in life, how much more risk. Um, and I had been sheltered from that. Which I guess was a good thing. But now, not now, but as I became a young adult and I, I really was beginning to become my own person in the world, um, when I had big decisions to make, like when my own butt was on the line, uh, I second-guessed myself a lot. 
Yeah, I, I, had, I had this uncertainty. But, but with that uncertainty, I think, comes autonomy. Whether you succeed or fail, at least you're your own. You know? And I think with that comes identity. It's like uncertainty leads to autonomy, and I think autonomy leads to identity. Not to get too philosophical, but so when I became an adult, now if I failed, I failed myself. And I could have my own opinions, but if they were thoughtless, then my own credibility would be what suffers. And if I if I make bad, really bad judgments and, and make bad decisions, then I, I, I have to face the consequences alone. So, but even to this day, even to this day, because I was raised the way I was, when I have a, a, a tough choice to make, I, I call my parents for advice. The values are so embedded in me. And uh, I, honestly, at times, I honestly wonder if I do actually have my own. You know, sometimes you feel like you were indoctrinated by your parents. Um, I'll find myself feeling guilty when I do things that I know they wouldn't approve of, which I do. They will remain unspecified. So, but that kind of bugs me sometimes. But I, I know this. I'll always be grateful to my parents for the stuff that, the, the good stuff that did get baked in. So anyway, getting back to Nashe, I got a, I got a reminder of this when I was just starting out as a teacher, like I said. Um, and I was a resource teacher. And when you're a resource teacher, you work with maybe, I don't know, three to five kids at a time. Uh, and I was probably like 23 or 24 years old at the time. I was just, just cutting my teeth. And I was in the inner city. I was from the suburbs, so I, I didn't really know what, you know, inner city life was like. Especially very poor, underprivileged inner city. And, um, and, uh, in, in this resource setting, it's like kind of like the highest, thinnest layer of special education. It's like the kids that are in many times regular ed classes and, and they have enough academic wherewithal that they have, you know, they're at least in the hunt for a, a, a standard diploma, the same diploma other kids get. Um, but times have changed again. Don't get me started. But anyway, I had Nashe first period. She was an African-American. And uh, um, almost nobody ever showed up at first period. It was when I first realized how poor attendance is in inner city schools. But she always did. Um, so you, so usually it was like, I don't know, 8, 8.05 in the morning. And it was just, just me and Nashe. Just about every morning. Um, she was probably 14. But she had like these dark eyes, like these dark brown eyes. And the look on, on her face made me feel like she'd been through a lot. You know, like her eyes were older than she was. She was pretty, though. And she lived in one of those parts of the city where, like, you don't go unless that's where you live. And um, just, I've had to drop people off there because I was a coach. And uh, they didn't have rides. Their parents, I, mean, I never even met half of their parents. I never met Nash Hayes. Um, But you go through those those short blocks, there's like unnamed convenience stores and liquor stores everywhere, but not much else. And um, being a suburban kid, I, I didn't really know my way around the city. I, to be honest, I still kind of don't. Thank God for, for Google Maps. Um, 
but the city seemed really big to me. I mean, I just grew up in this little suburb on the outskirts of the city. Um, but I, I get the feeling that to Nashe, the city was small. So after a few months of our first periods together, I got to know her pretty well. She didn't really talk much. She always had this sense of kind of like she was like brooding, but she wasn't angry. I don't know. It was just the weight of her world on her. And so she didn't really talk much. Um, she just did her work. She was always willing to do her work. If I told her to work on something and bring it back, if she didn't understand it, she would bring it back and we would work on it and we would complete it. It was kind of a regular thing. We developed kind of a rapport. Um, full disclosure, I, I misjudged her. So I don't know if this is, you know, to try and, try and kind of fix myself a little bit. She was a lot brighter than I thought she'd be by looking at her. You know, poor kid from the city. She was good. I mean, you know what I noticed about her right away, and I think this is kind of telling about a person in some ways, is um, she had she had excellent penmanship, like pretty writing. And and I think that you can't have that unless you're careful. It doesn't happen when you just try to take the path of least resistance through writing something. Like she she wrote beautifully, actually. And uh, so. Well, so she ended up being very capable, and I thought with her academic skills, this she might be able to beat the odds. Like given that scholarships were available to minority kids, and she was a, a comparatively a high achiever, thought if, if she completed high school, she she had a chance to go to college or get into some kind of training program and and escape the, you know, the kind of underprivileged life, which I thought maybe she would be able to pass on to her kids. So I never really pushed her to talk, though, about anything. And um, when she did talk, she was very matter-of-fact. But she did open up to me sometimes. And when she did, I would just let her talk. One morning, she came in. I will never forget this. One morning, she came in late, which was unusual. And she dropped her stuff on the desk and, and told me she was pregnant. She said she just found out. That's why she was late. She said she felt sick to her stomach. And uh, she gave me her muffin. She always brought in a muffin to eat. Sometimes one for me, too. She gave me her muffin. And I was like, I was flabbergasted. She put it on the desk. And she started talking to me. She said, James and me talked about it, and he don't care. He says it ain't his. Now, James, let me tell you about because we talked, she'd mentioned him. We talked about him before. He was a character I knew in her life. And James was nineteen. He dropped out of school, but he did have a job, and and you know, it, it wasn't like money was an issue for them in the relationship. She was very mature for her age. So as 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 crazy as it sounds that a fourteen year old was dating a nineteen year old, which would never ever be something that occurred in my sheltered suburban world, um, but he did have a job. He worked, I think, at like a, a garage for a mechanic. And I guess he had some skills. So cause I, I, I didn't imagine picturing her with like a total, total loser, like a drug dealer or something. But she's so she said, James, James and I talked. He don't care. He, he don't want nothing to do with it. And then she said that she said, I got to get my chains back. 
And I was like, what are you talking about? And then she, I, but I, I just let her talk. She said, she said, he'd been talking to some other girl, gave her my chains. I was like, oh, okay. She's talking about like necklace or jewelry or something like that. She's like, but I'm getting my chains back. He can buy her his own chains. <laughs> yeah, okay. So, and then I got back to it. I was like, you so, I was like, so you think James is cheating on you? For, for as long as I knew her, this is probably like five or six months into the school year. For that whole time, she was with James and there never seemed to be any like drama. She seemed to me like she was mature enough to be in an actual relationship where she could have a give and take. They could fight, you know, and he was working. So it was like, I don't know, there might have seemed like there was a future there. But I honestly didn't know the specifics, and no one ever does from the outside of a relationship. But, but she said, um, she said, I said, you think James is cheating on you? And I'll, I'll never forget the look she gave me. She was, I, I just couldn't believe she was like fourteen years old. She said, I know he is. I said, and I don't care, as long as I get that child support. She 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 said it in a way that made it sound to me like she was repeating it, like someone else had said it. And she agreed with it, and she was saying it, but it almost sounded like it was coming from somebody else's mouth, her mom or her grandma or someone. Um, she repeated it too. She was like, "Got to make sure you get that child support." It's like, "Yes, you know what?" I was, I was scrambling. I'm like, "Child support is very important for single moms." You know, trying to not drop, you know, to, 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 to say the uh, what was the obvious thing to me is like, why did you get pregnant? How did you let yourself get pregnant? Uh, but she said, that's what my grandma said. I was like, that's what I figured. She said, James can go on his way as long as we get that child support. All right. All right. So I, and then I was like, are you sure that you can't work it out with James? I know you're young. I know things change, but like, you know, you probably want father to be part of his his child's life. You want you want the child to have a father. She, no response. So I was like, just sitting there thinking about it. I went over actually. I started eating the muffin, like sitting at my desk. I had no idea what to say. And I was just thinking, like, Jesus. So after a while, I started thinking about it, and I, and I was like, I wanted to ask her, like, if she was going to be able to take this experience and, like, learn from it for, like, for the future. And I said, I got, it, it just occurred to me. I was like, I said, Nashe, and I actually said, I said, what have you learned from this? She's looking at me. I said, if your baby's a boy... When he gets older and starts getting interested in girls and fooling around, what advice are you going to give him? Like, what are you going to tell him to try to do? And I wasn't even really sure where I was going with it. Like, I was thinking, like, you know, don't get somebody pregnant. You know, be responsible. Um, you know, wait until you're ready to have a relationship before you start, you know, you know, possibly having kids. <laughs> um, he said, what would you tell your son to do as he started to get older and hang out with girls? 
for a second she was confused by the question, like she didn't know. And it's understandable. It's kind of a vague question. But I'll never forget this. All of a sudden, something dawned on her. And she was like, oh, yeah. I'll make sure he knows to pay his child support. It was like a speechless. So why did I tell you that? I told you that because now I have great, great admiration for my parents. I have for a long time. As much as I sometimes complain about them, you know, what they made of me that I never chose, that I might never be able to change, the part I resent is nothing compared to the part I could not have made it without. Mom, Dad, if you're listening, I love you. And with that, I will conclude this episode as always, thank you for listening, and I will see you soon, hopefully tomorrow.